0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network channel in sociology. I'm the host, Richard Osijo of the City University of New York, and I'm joined today by Christopher Mealy, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo, and he's going to tell us a little bit about his new book, Race and the Politics of Deception, The Making of an American City. Welcome to the show, Chris.
1: Hi. Thanks. Good to be here.
0: Great. So I wanted you to start by telling us uh, just a little bit about your your biography, your personal background, professional background, some work that you've uh, previously done before this book.
1: Okay. Well, right now I am currently a professor at the University of Buffalo in sociology department and I've been there since the mid-90s. Uh, my beginning roots in urban sociology were at the New School for Social Research, Uh, which was a great place to be in the late 80s, early 90s. I studied under Janet Abulugad and Charles Tilley, Ira Katznelson, a bunch of other really good urbanists. Uh, My dissertation was on the Lower East Side that eventually became part of a much bigger project that led to my book in 2000 from Minnesota. Selling the Lower East Side, and in some odd ways, uh, this recent book on uh, race and politics deception is a sort of c- continuation of a broad theme on the role of representation in the political economy of urban development. So uh, that's basically what my gig is. I spend most of my time uh, doing case studies of particular areas within cities, like New York, or cities themselves, like. Chester and Pennsylvania, right outside of Philadelphia, and also in Camden. And I'm uh, about to uh, finish up some work this summer on uh, an area called Regent Park in Toronto. So I guess I'm an old-school urbanist that likes to do community studies.
0: Yeah, that's great. So you just mentioned Chester, which is the, uh, the case that you focus on in this book. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about the city and how you came to write this book about Chester.
1: Right. So I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware. In uh I guess I left there for graduate school because I went to the University of Delaware for my undergraduate degree. I left uh, the region about uh, the late eighties and uh at that time uh Chester which uh, sits between Wilmington and Philadelphia off of Interstate 95. Also, the Amtrak line flashes through there on its way on the uh, northeast corridor. And Chester uh, had loomed large uh, in somewhat in, the, in my childhood as a place I'd never had really visited, but had always heard about. Uh, Wilmington shares the Philadelphia media market, so any kind of discussions about mostly – Uh, terrible things that were happening, uh, vast fires, abandonment, crime and things of that nature that makes for uh, typical news media coverage uh, made it into the Wilmington area. Um, And so it was really a a kind of a place that uh, people were told to avoid as much as possible um, who did not live there. It wasn't until uh, much later uh, when I returned about 10 years ago uh, to do some elder care with my parents that um, I ventured into Chester primarily uh, through uh, taking my mother up to what was then the opening of uh, Harrah's uh, Casino. So I uh, Chester uh, had immediately struck me as this kind of hodgepodge of it's best uh, described still as kind of uh, experiments in neoliberal urban development in the sense that within a short strip of about a half a mile, you'll find a casino, uh, a prison, uh, two waste to energy incinerators, a soccer stadium, uh, all along a kind of repurposed waterfront uh, Again, cheek by jail, very close to each other within uh, if one were to walk within minutes of each other. And I found that this was, a, I guess, my first impression as an urban sociologist, that this was a example of neoliberalism in the sense of uh, private partner and public partnerships that were, uh, in essence, building uh, deal making efforts along this abandoned waterfront of uh, but no forethought as to how these are linked together and, more importantly, what impact, if any, they had on the broader community that sat across the industrial highway, the, prop, the city of Chester proper itself, which was and is majority African-American, uh, close to 80 percent and uh, majority poor. So this uh, was my in. My inroads, uh, and I wrote about this uh, in a few articles about the kind of significance of this kind of deal making in which um, the eye is not on the ball of urban development in some broader historical sense, but more on uh, essentially mustering the financial capital, the political will to construct uh, these. Sort of icons to neoliberalism in the sense that they really don't have much to do with or relate to each other, and then move on to something else. So uh, within a short period of ten years, these things that I mentioned had all popped up uh, and uh, essentially touted as the the way to rescue Chester from its deindustrialized past.
0: Yeah, yeah, interesting. So you. You really present this contrast between what you just described about Chester's redevelopment, and that is the the casino, the the waterfront, the soccer stadium, and and then the rest of the city, which, as you mentioned, is predominantly black and poor. And you really use this contrast to present what you call this ideology of colorblindness as a race strategy in Chester's growth, not just today, but you. Extend this back historically, as we'll discuss, but I was wondering if you can just talk briefly about what this means this uh, this ideology of uh, color blindness as, a, as a, a race strategy, a specific strategy.
1: Right. So, I guess um, after doing some work on you know, why these particular uh, forms of urban development were popping up within a short course of time in the 90s and, and the 2000s. Um, I then began to do a bit more fine-tuned research in terms of uh, archival, but primarily at that point, interviews. And what I was finding when I asked what was the logic that was going here in terms of what was being built from urban planners and from um, the entrepreneurial uh, companies that were coming in and doing a lot of the planning, uh, kind of paid consulting and things of this nature, is that uh, they kept referring to Uh, these efforts as part of a larger project to create more diversity within Chester. And at first I I thought that they were talking about diversity of use in terms of, again, there's a whole uh, uh, display of uh, uses here, incarceration, uh, gambling, uh, sports and leisure, spectacle and things of this nature. A lot of things that urbanists have been writing about, but what they were really talking about as I pressed them further was Diversity in terms of the population uh, that uses, enjoys, recreates, uh, makes some form of presence in, whether as residents or visitors in Chester. And essentially, they were referring to uh, an effort to try to expand the attraction and pool of Chester to the broader suburbs, which are majority white and wealthy, And they were using this uh, discourse of how uh, a significant part of Chester's problem in the recent past is that it lacked the kind of diversity that made cities uh, kind of tying into the creative cities impulse that that, uh, Chester lacked this. And it was uh, interesting to me as someone who studied uh, post-war cities that this kind of discourse about uh, race was being employed in a very uh, what I thought was the unique way. Um, There's a film uh, called My Brooklyn, a documentary by Kelly Anderson on uh, the redevelopment of Fulton Mall in Brooklyn. And she um, outlines a similar kind of process that uh, she talks about how Fulton Mall was uh, was very much uh, an economic success catering to primarily African-American and Latino residents in Brooklyn. Uh, But the plans to uh, that underwent to redevelop it. Uh, ignored uh, that element. And in the film, one of the urban planners says quite clearly that the problem is, is that this, that it caters exclusively to minority residents and that we need to remake uh, Fulton Mall into something a bit more uh, welcoming to others besides minorities. And I found this and I find this still to be an interesting use of a discourse about the end of a kind of collective Residents of race as uh, a claims making strategy of uh, poorer cities of, of um, discrimination and segregation and structural problems and turning it on, on its head to kind of individualize these consequences. That the individuals who live in these cities are sort of the, the byproducts or leftovers of failed strategies and that the success is more likely if we move towards a, a strategy that integrates. So this is a discourse that's very popular in this kind of mixed communities uh, research that, that people like Loretta Lees in the UK have been working on, um, and the Move to Opportunity Program in the US, I guess, also taps into this idea that cities uh, that historically deindustrialized have become um, kind of concentrated areas of poverty of mostly minority. Residents uh, need to be broken up and the infusion of middle class, white, primarily white uh, ethos or a kind of, of mentorship in a strange way would uh, be the best means for revival. So the this idea that came to me is is this notion that, well, here we're seeing that race is not really being used in its kind of composition or demographic form, but purely in a discursive notion of of a diversity discourse that's being employed to uh, legitimize the redevelopment. Because what was going on was a number of community actors in Chester and also in Camden, another city that I looked at, were making claims that the promises of economic development that casinos and stadiums bring... Uh, are rarely borne out. And to counter these claims, the argument was being made, well, this is um, an effort to, again, uh, try to open up the city to a much broader audience that includes white middle-class uh, visitors at this point, but in the future, quite clearly, uh, residents as well. And so I I began to wonder, to what degree does race cons comprise or constitute some kind of strategy that entrepreneurs and city leaders and urban planners in efforts to either gentrify or redevelop, deploy or employ in transformation of space. And so as I looked further and deeper into Chester, that was one of the things that, that I was convinced was going on, is that throughout the history of Chester, and I covered essentially since 1900, that race has been used um, as an effective strategy. And by race, I'm referring to explicitly the representation, the discourse around race that draws in dominant ideologies. At this point, colorblindness, but in earlier times, of course, uh, a bit more heinous notions of of, um, separation and racial superiority become deployed in a way in which uh, space is allocated. And uh, although people have written about this obviously at great length and structurally, I guess uh, there's a couple of things that I try to accomplish by focusing on race as a strategy in terms of political economy and development.
0: Right, right. I think that's a real fascinating decision that you made in in the book to to uh, to to use that strategy so you you talk a bit about how while you know Chester really in many ways it follows that typical path of the post-war city suburbanization white flight the industrialization degrees of gentrification your aim is to really focus on this idea of agency and intentionality over time in Chester and to avoid some of those grand narratives that we've uh, become very familiar with in uh, urban research uh, tell us a bit about that decision that you made to to focus on more agency and intentionality as a way of understanding these grand narratives in uh, a different way.
1: Yeah, this um, I, I, I really am convinced and, and remain excited about is that uh, it's a combination of, uh, I guess, my efforts at teaching Urban sociology for the past 25 years, and obviously uh, students who were born um, at this point uh, much later than uh, most of the things that are talked about in the post-war narrative of um, deindustrialization and suburbanization. So to them, it's uh, it, it's about an abstraction; it's not obviously lived. Then I also uh, so there's that that kind of uh, was driving me to try to address this issue of. The absence of agency and the absence of complexity within this narrative and the way in which um, often, especially in mainstream sociology, uh, in, in the sense of setting up discussions about things like neighborhood effects and, and setting up discussions about things uh, like uh, discussions of urban concentrated poverty, that these things are, are provided in a, um, a very cursory way. They're not wrong by any stretch. Um, but they uh they hide uh, a lot of the detail, the granular level of detail that I um was interested in explaining to not only students, but um also in this discussion of Chester. The, the the second part of that decision was um the archival work that I did in Chester. Not only was I finding that um race was consistently playing the, the, the key card in how the city was transformed. But I was also finding that it was uh, intentional and that the the granular level analysis of who was involved and who was making these decisions and how uh, race became um, not epiphenomenal or even a a consequence of some of these actions of, for example, to not build um, an all black uh, housing development privately owned in the immediate post-war period or to um, not build an incinerator in the uh, downtown area that would be controlled by the city itself, which was primarily African-American by the 1970s, but uh, by the county, which is majority white, that there was a lot of, I guess the best way to put it was uh, this kind of manipulation um, that was occurring at the politics of urban development that drew explicitly on racial categories and stigma, racial fears in particular. And these were not uh, either coincidental or even incidental, they were explicit and intentional. And, got, uh, and I kept finding this repeated within this uh, archival research on Chester. So the book uh, is trying to do, I guess, three things here all related to this notion of race. I guess the first we already talked about, which is this notion of elevating race and representations of race to a kind of strategic element in the political economy of urban development. The second one uh, was to kind of have in dialogue with these more structural grand narrative notions of post-war urban change and to... Uh, modestly interject an effort to, um, return to granular level detail to bring out the complexity of that story for the sake of primarily freshmen who are coming in and, and seeing this as a, almost a sing song narrative of, of ION words, gentrification, deindustrialization, these kinds of things, uh, to, to bring it more to life and to, uh, uh, remove some of the flattening of agency and intentionality. And then the third thing is the story itself. Um, Chester is in many ways, an extreme case of this uh, continuous engagement with race, but mostly uh, in, a, in a clearly negative way in the redevelopment and, and, and transformation of the city over time and the peculiarities of what I found that really uh, drove me uh in in terms of of the analysis of of the importance of race and, again, highlighting these details, mostly duplicitous, mostly um, parasitic in terms of the way, especially in the period of the 70s and 80s, the way in which a lot of the uh, negative events and and, uh, processes that were occurring around drugs and crime in the city that were... uh, you know, uh, superficially attributed to the presence of a majority black population. But uh, clearly through the analysis that I found um, run by um, machine politics, leftovers of mostly uh, predominantly white um, politicians who essentially saw the opportunity to bilk the city and um, its connection to federal programs in particular as a way of lining pockets and at the expense of residents. And, and I, I think that this uh, this focus in this particular period, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here. Chapter was uh, in terms of talking about crime and and corruption at the highest scales of, of local government um, really needs to be addressed. I mean, I do only uh focusing on Chester, I I think that um, there's a need to talk about the significance of corruption in the politics at the local level and how that intersects with race. I know, um, and I think we all know, that that's not unique to Chester. Uh, But it hasn't been fully enveloped in our understanding of a lot of the post-war processes.
0: Right, right. Well, I think it's a a really fascinating decision, and you you really show it historically quite well. And uh you, you the chapters really proceed chronologically and you, you trace the history of this this racial tension and the the, the, the rise of race to assign blame for social ills of, of urban growth to in Chester to World War One. Uh before then you show how uh the city's race relations seemed somewhat stable and to a certain degree, relatively speaking, blacks even somewhat flourished there. So right. what was it about this era that led to this this shift and to the, the rise of this uh, intentionality?
1: So the early history of Chester, um, uh, I should uh, say quite clearly up front, is that what makes Chester somewhat unique is the longevity of the Republican political machine uh, from Uh, the late 19th century uh, up to 1965, which is somewhat extraordinary running not only the city of Chester, but Delaware County where it sits. And in the early stages of of the city's uh, pre uh, growth spurt related to world war one, like many cities uh, there was a a, a sort of uh, in in the North um, a, a stalemate of uh, in terms of uh, of what neighborhoods were considered to be African-American, what neighborhoods were considered to be white, Uh, the population growth was uh, nominally increased in the late 19th century. It wasn't until uh, essentially when uh, the black migration uh, related to the two wars uh, brought a number of African-Americans from the South to industrial cities that the population changes that occurred uh, laid bare a lot of the underlying political processes that were keeping this stalemate in place. So uh, Chester was, um, in this period, primarily a kind of a honky-tonk industrial city. It was the kind of bar district for the greater Delaware Valley. It stayed open later. Uh, The corruption of the political machine linked to alcohol um, and prostitution was clearly on display uh the front side of it however was that this these uh establishments were primarily run by lieutenants with, in the black, in the political machine who were african american so uh there was a race riot in uh 1917 in chester uh that basically the 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 tensions underlying demographic changes and uh the the notion that African-Americans were in control of primarily the vice district in the city uh, came to a boil. Uh, the resolution was the machine uh, e- essentially embraced the strategy of separation that appealed to African-Americans out of very little choice of their own in the sense of creating a, a, a sense of control within black communities, So you had the development of a very extensive uh, downtown district uh, exclusively for African-Americans with uh, obviously stores and shops and things in schools. The career path uh, to the middle class was primarily through education at segregated schools, uh, again controlled by the Republican political machine in terms of appointments. So there was a carrot and stick approach. Um African Americans, as long as they stay within the particular areas, uh, were protected by the machine from the potential of white backlash. At the same time were those who participated willingly in so to speak, in the uh, production of this spatial segregation were awarded in terms of their connection to patronage in the political machine. That begins to um, unfold. As we get into the, uh, again, the the latter part of the 1940s and 1950s, primarily due to external forces related to the intervention of the federal government in terms of federal housing programs, but also in terms of the civil rights movement and the way in which it played out in Chester, which again was a test case uh, for the relationship between the NAACP and its kind of efforts at. trying to harness, uh, the young, uh, more militant African-American civil rights activists. Uh, and this becomes a, kind of blows up in the period of the 1960s. So, um, one of the clear efforts of manipulation of race and the, uh, that clearly shows intentionality is, uh, the, Period of 1963-64, when the city was embroiled in a number of demonstrations, pickets, boycotts uh, related to primarily school segregation, and uh, this was came all under the auspices of a kind of firebrand young man who came to town uh, by the name of Stanley Branch, um, who at first worked within the local and AACP, which had been very effective in a gradual um, improvement of civil rights over the course from the 1930s to the the 1960s. But Branch, uh, not unlike many others in uh, the civil rights era in the early 60s, wanted to take something a bit more in your face and embrace more uh, strategies uh, that we are somewhat familiar with in terms of the history civil rights movement like sit-ins and pickets and uh, demonstrations in in town. So period of 63-64 this occurs uh, the title of the chapter that I talk about this is called the Birmingham of the North that was uh, what uh, was attributed to Chester at this time Uh, it created this uh, schism within the civil rights movement a number of uh, the, the local civil rights advocates who were related to the NAACP were concerned about of the pace and scale of these demonstrations Uh, there was no end game in in place and uh, just to jump forward um, it turns out that uh, Mr. Branch uh, was not simply a firebrand civil rights activist who came to town and and sparked uh, uh, some massive forms of demonstrations and protests, but he was uh, essentially on the payroll of the local white elite political party has set ties, uh, family ties with uh, some of the members of black lieutenants who uh, were part of the Republican machine. Uh, in essence, it becomes revealed. And uh, one of the more interesting periods of doing research for this book was I was reading the NAACP archives uh, from the Chester papers and a number of the uh, local, uh, again, old guard civil rights activists had input in writing in their letters to the national office that there's something strange going on here. We don't know who this guy is uh, and uh, we don't know why he never seems to get arrested. Uh, they they seem to think that there was something uh, untoward about his presence and how he was striking up uh, a lot of action and a lot of activity. The national uh, NAACP, however, was was interested in creating uh, this image of uh, participation of young people. So we so hesitant to criticize Stanley branch long and short of it is that the strategy that the, the Republican party uh, was embracing was uh, to try to percolate in many ways, the civil rights activism within the city um, that exacerbated white fear. And in essence, you saw uh, the effort clearly of the, uh, the, the white political machine to try to facilitate the exodus of whites from what they saw was the inevitability of a demographic transition in the city of Chester to being primarily black. And so there, the, there, there was an old guard, there's a, a number of old white working class neighborhoods that were holding on. And uh, if you look at the uh, the, the chapter uh, that, that I talk about this and you see that these begin to fall as a domino effect, immediately following these, the racial unrest. So there's a, this is one of maybe two or three that I discussed in the book in which the, the quite obvious cynical manipulation of racial fear as a means a mechanism to facilitate. Now, I'm not suggesting that it caused, but it's definitely clear evidence that it facilitated, exacerbated this, this transition of what we all call white flight. Uh, again, Dating back to my earlier discussion about when this is presented to people today who are 18 to 20 years old, they feel that this is a a sort of an era when people harbored racial animus and prejudice, and we have moved beyond that. I'm not suggesting that people who lived in Chester did not harbor those forms of, of animus and feeling and racist attitudes towards their neighbors. But I also want to emphasize to students, and this is one of the purposes of the chapter in the book, is that there's a more systematic approach that's going on here in the way in which race is being deployed as a means to uh, further decisions that people were hesitant to make.
0: Right. I mean, I think the, the white flight narrative, obviously, is something that you really unpack quite well, I think, in this book. Something that we've really taken for granted and you really show how suburban growth was it was really more of an expansion of racial division that was already occurring in the city, uh, in in Chester
1: at the time. Right. Yes, most definitely. And th- I argue that it's it as you said, uh, the scale shifts to the suburbs, uh, and the the urban suburban divide becomes a much larger version of what was already had occurred in the segregated spaces within the city itself.
0: Right. So then after these civil rights battles that you just talked about a little bit, we see some institutional decline, further institutional decline, further disinvestment, uh, more what we can call, what is popularly white flight. Uh, but you argue that that the key to understanding Chester during this period of, I suppose, 1970s, 1980s, is a, a parasitic economy, you call it, that that really emerged, that took advantage of the black population, uh, that was fueled by this public discourse and rhetoric that pushed black cultural deficiencies to the fore as the cause of these uh, problems that were occurring in black communities.
1: Right. So here, uh, this is an interesting, I think, and uh, this period is very close uh, to my uh, Experienced as growing up as a teenager, uh, where again uh, the the standard narrative was the concentration of poor black folks within inner cities of smaller, uh, the industrial areas like Camden, Chester, Wilmington, Delaware, Baltimore, um, were essentially creating these uh, these zones in which um, drugs flourished, crime flourished, uh, the whole. Uh, discourse that's picked up even continues today about the welfare queen and this, this notion uh, are, um, are on display here. I don't go into great detail about that. I'm much more interested in how this uh, intersects with the politics of development at the time. As you said, uh, by this point in, in uh, urban history, we're talking about uh, deindustrialization at a massive scale, uh, Ford motor plant, uh, the Pew Uh, Sun Oil Company, Uh, these these were bulwarks of Chester's industrial past, have already uh, long uh, closed by the mid-70s, early 80s. And uh, the city is essentially kind of reeling from the absence of of, uh, any form of of reliable employment base. At the same time that this is occurring, uh, you see – that the blame is placed uh, squarely on uh, the backs of the residents themselves. The, uh, as I outline in uh, the chapter on uh, that we're talking about, called Five Square Miles of Hell," is that uh, at the at the tail end of the racial unrest in the '60s, uh, the state of Pennsylvania and the, in line with the federal government, primarily the War on Poverty, used uh, Chester as an explicit test case. Uh, like many cities, uh, which the grassroots movements uh, and anti-poverty campaigns, in this case, the Greater Chester Movement, were harnessed as a means to funnel uh, funds from federal and state levels to be, uh, make meaningful impact at the, at the local level. There was uh, a, about a period of 18 months where this was quite effective in addressing a number of long-term, long-standing uh, poverty issues in the city of Chester, especially around employment training. Uh, but... As, uh, unfortunately, the case was in many cities, these were harnessed by uh, political elites. Uh, the funds were misappropriated. Uh, they were used, again, and funneled in through patronage systems so that uh, family members and political allies were taking over positions related to social welfare. The public housing authority in Chester uh, is a great example of that. And in essence, uh, became a way to, as I call it, a parasitic economy that flows coming in from the federal and state level were channeled in directly to uh, elites and that the impact uh, lessened almost immediately after following this event in the uh, early 1970s. And the Human Rights Commission from Pennsylvania did a quite an extensive analysis on this and found quite clearly that this level of corruption uh, reached from the regional level right down into, uh, again, the, the, the local leaders and social service providers within the city of Chester. So uh, what this narrative then of stigma does is, is it kind of shifts that discussion, that, that focus away from what are the mechanics of how this corruption is actually occurring to the individuals who are ostensibly the victims of this, but are nonetheless being portrayed as the perpetrators of it by virtue of their own uh, behavioral actions, their lack of education, things of this nature that we well know as being kind of tied to the stigma of uh, black inner city culture. So this becomes again, another way of discursively of pushing the blame and the focus away from uh, the, the actual actors themselves. The yeah. second Part of this story yeah. that, that makes it a bit uh, even stranger to this is the is the uh, the story about the incinerators, and I'll just very quickly uh, suggest uh, some comments on this. So in uh, Chester, the um, the first black mayor is uh, elected, and one of her main um, efforts at trying to get economic development is to build. A an incinerator that would essentially take care of all of Philadelphia's trash. And this was pitted against plans from the county to build an incinerator to get rid of all of the, it, Delaware County's trash. As I outlined in the story, um, the black mayor's approach to having a city-determined economic strategy is put forward as this kind of self empowerment of African-Americans and and to try to counter this narrative of stigma and a number of well-meaning residents and community activists buy into it, what it turns out to be, again, it documented in a very cynical way, it turns out to be primarily a ruse uh, to take the eye off the ball of creating what becomes the largest waste, uh, industrial park on the east coast that was built by the county and again I, I don't think i have the time to go into details but here again this is the case in which the mayor um who ended up uh it, it turns out that she was the secretary of uh, uh, an earlier mayor who was convicted of racketeering was uh playing into um again cynically manipulating these notions of black self-empowerment for the purposes of again taking the eye off the ball of the fact of of creating what became disastrous in terms of environmental consequences for the community itself. So this chapter, uh, like like the chapter on uh, the race uh, unrest, shows quite clearly um, in the way in which I I attempt to document it, uh, is how the intentionality of playing into a larger, broader discourse about race, in this case, the stigma of race, becomes an effective means to transform the city uh, according to, again, the interest of mostly white elites, in this case, mostly white suburban elites. Uh, and and that uh, brings us up into the present period, which is where we started.
0: Right. And this this segues perfectly right back to the beginning, which is the... Uh, revitalization, I guess you can call it, of Chester in the, the late 20th, early 21st century up until today, and that is the, the waterfront development, the casino, the soccer stadium. And it's in this concluding chapter where you return to this idea of color blindness and how it gets used in these developments, which you refer to very cleverly in a turn of phrase as islands of renewal in a sea of decay. And the distinction between having uh, community stakeholders versus having community shareholders, which I think is a very valuable way of looking at this. But talk a little bit more about uh, specifically how this, this colorblindness takes place today in uh, Chester with these developments.
1: So uh, the I, I, what I try to do in, in the final chapter is to outline what are the implications then of this effort, as I mentioned at the beginning of today, of, of Trying to diversify, not by simply uses, but but who's using uh, these spaces? Basically, consumers, right? Uh, they're not residents at this point. So there is uh, the, the casino has done fairly well. Uh, it, it, it initially was supposed to uh, uh, contribute to a much larger redevelopment of the of the adjacent area, uh, but uh, no one really expected that. We have Atlantic City and other cities to 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 show us that that. Uh, It's most likely not going to happen, and it hasn't happened in Chester. The soccer stadium um, is uh, successful, but again, that is a spectacle-oriented development that only attracts people at uh, when there is an event going on. Uh, My question was then, what was the implication for the residents that lived nearby? How are they being integrated into this form of this narrative of Chester rising? And in essence, they, they play either two roles. Uh, They are either impediments in the sense that they uh, they're standing in the way of by their very presence and behavior. And this is focused primarily on uh, the the criminal element, as it's as it's called, that exists in Chester. That, um, uh, again, uh, creates this uh, image that pops up occasionally on the local news of uh, this is still Chester uh, and the city's effort to try to, to eliminate that through primarily through surveillance techniques borrowed somewhat from Camden, which has been uh, a test case for using high-tech surveillance gunshot detectors and things of this nature to try to discipline the population in, uh, in, the, in a kind of uh, focus on the punitive elements of, of the criminal justice system. So th- there's the people who are the impediments, and then there's the others who are either low-wage workers uh, that, that are employed, but very few, in the casino and the, uh, or in the prison or in the, uh, soccer stadium. And, uh, so they're either participating as low wage workers or they are simply not to be part of it. Uh, in essence, they are excluded. Um, and so in essence, the, 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 the way in which, uh, it, it, individualizes the collective sentiment of the community. And that's what I try to get at this notion of community shareholder, the, the effort to try to tap into what is it that folks that live there um, are, are trying to achieve and are interested in achieving. One thing that has happened since uh, I put this book to bed is that the uh, Avenue of the States, which is one of the former uh, commercial streets in the city of Chester, has seen an effort uh, by local artists to create what's called uh, Made in Chester. And it's a it's a very interesting and uh, very hopeful process in which the individuals are very keen, they're very smart, very savvy. They do not want this to be an issue in which artists become the kind of incubators of gentrifiers, who then eventually they themselves get displaced, and this becomes you know another corporate mall. Um, in essence, what they're doing is they're creating a kind of land bank effort to to create spaces of art. Uh, they have a coffee shop, furniture store. They have a number of efforts that in uh, formerly abandoned buildings, and but they have an explicit agenda uh, of more of a local social justice appeal to create a district that is meant for people who live in Chester and, of course, anyone else who wants to come visit, but that this is not a springboard towards some form of corporate developments. They're, they're very keen. They're very political savvy in trying to uh, make sure this doesn't happen. So the colorblindness uh, issue uh, obviously intersects with the idea that, uh, that, that, the, that the future of Chester is a consumption-oriented spectacle entertainment city that addresses primarily the needs of the larger, broader communities, especially Delaware County, and the residents themselves become sidelined. Uh, the grassroots effort that's occurring is to counter that narrative, and uh, it remains to be seen where that will go.
0: Right, exactly. We'll we'll see, I guess, where a lot of other cities are going to be probably engaging with a lot of these uh, questions and tensions. Um, I just wanted to ask a quick methodological question. So a lot of your research was archival, but you mentioned how you started out by doing interviews with some, I think, city leaders and civic boosters. Um, I'm just curious what some of the things you know what's some of the 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 narratives that these folks said to you um if any of them at all recognize some of these tensions and issues uh did you speak to anybody in the african-american community african-american leaders and what some of their thoughts were on some of these new developments and the directions that chester's going in
1: yes so uh the for the First group, uh, primarily uh, city leaders, there was an effort, it's a group called, or sorry, an organization called CEDA, uh, which, like many cities, uh, Chester essentially uh, yielded its planning powers and its uh, capacity to uh, create a, a, a more citizen oriented form of urban development, one that would be accountable to residents. They ceded that authority primarily to a public private organization charged. Exclusively with entrepreneurial development, bringing in capital, those folks uh, speak to uh, that as that effort almost exclusively. They they seem to suggest that uh, the residents will benefit by some measure uh, down the line, simply by uh, attracting capital, mainly real estate capital, back into the city itself. So that's an interesting development because, again, the the only way that uh, local leaders saw that happening was. Again, to essentially cede that to a a, a third party, um, and that those folks who I interviewed with were the proponents of this notion of this this city is um, in many ways too minority, and an effort to try to open it up. That was the language for them. Local leaders from the African American community, in particular, um, saw a mixed benefit in this, in that the, that uh, the effort to try to redeveloped the city has always been uh, on the forefront, uh, especially since the debacle of uh, deindustrialization effects in the 1970s. So they were very welcome to many of these efforts. Um, but there's always been a, a great degree of skepticism in terms of how this is going to pan out and play um, for the folks who live, as they say, across 291, which is the, 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 the industrial highway that separates the waterfront from the city proper. So they, uh, their effort is to try to constantly uh, garner some leverage in how these deals are made out. But uh, they have turned more inward uh, primarily because they understand uh, that the waterfront has been, again, essentially ceded to this third party that has control over the land of uh, county in particular has deals uh, to uh, cede uh, county on property to uh, property developers for, Uh, a nominal sum and they abate the property and build these kinds of complexes like the soccer stadium from out-of-town concerns so in essence the uh, the effort along avenue of the states is reflective of of, of more of these uh, a combination of the skepticism of of uh, project-based redevelopment that's occurring along the waterfront but also more of an organic uh, grassroots effort at trying to take the reins of redevelopment up on the individuals themselves within the community and look more inwardly. Uh, There's been a a similar effort I can just jump in real quick and make a plug for Buffalo. Uh, There was an effort to redevelop the waterfront mainly from external large corporations to build uh, sort of like a bass pro fishing outlet that's supposed to prompt some form of transformation that fell through. Uh, A number of local activists uh, turned to the city and said give us a chance and it's become somewhat uh, highly successful, actually, in, in that it's it's oriented towards local individuals, as opposed to this abstract notion of the successful white middle class gentrifier who's going to come in and save the day. Uh, so in essence, uh, we see a similar thing occurring in Chester. And um, again, it's very early on, but there is quite clearly an effort to try to, as I say at the end of the book, to try to, to transform the narrative, too. Uh, away from uh the hapless passive victim to being someone who uh the residents who are being very fully integrated and try to control the narrative of development, which is a very difficult task at this day and age in terms of the way public private partnerships have, have really taken that uh discourse of diversity and played it up
0: right yeah interesting parallels and and I guess we'll uh wait and see see what what unfurls so uh we have uh Taken up a lot of your time already. Uh, I was wondering before we conclude if you would just tell us a little bit about what you've been working on. You touched on it a little bit, but um, what have you been? What have you been doing next? And uh, how, do you, how does it build from what you've been uh, doing with this book in Chester?
1: Uh, well, I, I guess uh, one of the things that I've been working on recently is uh, looking at this area called Regent Park in Toronto. So Regent Park is uh, right east of downtown Toronto. It's very centrally located. Toronto is undergoing this massive pace gentrification. Uh, has uh, I've read recently the largest number of high-rise condominium buildings going up in North America. Uh, So Regent Park was the first public housing development and largest in Canada, built in the post-war period, primarily to uh, Irish working class, uh, became increasingly uh, occupied by uh, immigrant communities, um, especially from uh, South Asia and uh, the Caribbean. And it was an effort about 10 years ago to transform this space uh, associated, again, with the stigma of uh, crime and uh, racial poverty into a mixed income community. So uh, in essence, cross subsidize. So sell some of the units, uh, sorry, demolish everything, uh, build new structures uh, as condominium complex and uh, use the uh, funds to subsidize the production of uh, low income housing as a replacement. So the story is pretty standard as one would expect. That hasn't really played out as anticipated. Uh, There aren't as many units as promised. But the part that I'm interested in, again, is the way in which this has been sold and an effort to try to uh, kind of create this this ideal notion of uh, white middle class colonizers are somehow going to provide uh, mentorship skills and social capital to residents who have been essentially cut off or isolated Due to the 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 production of the of the public housing project, uh, my take and focus has been uh, by interviewing people who have been displaced because they've been tracked. Um, is that there were strong social networks that were in play uh, that had evolved over the years, sort of uh, imbricated with a lot of the social problems around uh, crime, in particular, and poverty. Uh, that made do that these have been kind of pulled apart and torn asunder. And very and many very difficult to be replaced, and so the the what I'm trying to work on at this point is this kind of colliding narratives of here are people who are isolated, abandoned, and disenfranchised and basically uh, positioned as victims who will benefit from white middle class colonization versus a narrative of the what's occurring more at the, at the level of the ground in which here is a community that did suffer by far a number of significant uh, social problems, but have become uh, very uh, wild at figuring out ways to create uh, networks amongst residents, especially uh, uh, that crossed uh, both ethnicity and race, uh, and in essence created a very viable uh, grassroots um, social capital uh, community, oriented community, uh, that became uh, because this this pro- this project is being uh, pulled apart over time, and as sociologists it's a unique opportunity to get to see this and, and unfortunate as it may be. but these networks are being torn uh, apart in the very process and and so this again uh, the the question of whether or not this is again the use of uh, of a narrative of inclusion and diversity that's definitely being at play here in terms of the redevelopment of Regent Park is, again, an effort to um, what Loretta Lees calls gentrification by stealth, which is this kind of effort to make it feel good gentrification that, at the end of the day, uh, displaces a large number of people, but also the networks that they formed.
0: Really interesting, and you're right. As, As sociologists, we don't often get to study, especially as urban sociologists, we don't get to study these uh, events in real time or to right. trace uh, the displaced but uh, seems you're you're right there uh, fortunately for you unfortunately for the people involved obviously um, but fascinating stuff yeah. and hopefully uh, when you eventually write up that book you can come back and and we can discuss it
1: yeah it'd be great
0: <laughs> all right I want to thank you Chris for for coming on uh,
1: really great stuff good thank you for having uh, me.